Our scripture reading this morning is taken from the Gospel of John. You'll see there in your, in your bulletin. John chapter 13. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. And now in chapter 17. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me, and love them, even as you love me. Let's pray. Gracious Father, your word uh, is eternal, uh, standing firm in the heavens. Your faithfulness continues through all generations. Your laws endure to this day for all things serve you. And as we build, as we begin to move to a new building, uh, even as you're building your church uh, in these turbulent days, uh, we pray you'd give us grace uh, to be marked as a people who love um, and that uh, a watching world will know that the gospel is true. Uh, and will you anoint the preaching and hearing of this, which is your word, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So at the end of the day, how can anyone tell that anyone else uh, is a Christian? Is there any unassailable, irrefutable proof of the Christian faith? Is a true Christian faith proven by profession of faith? Is it proven by baptism, church membership, attendance? Is it proven by religious or political conservatism? Or is it proven by the crosses around our necks or the crosses on our buildings? Is it proven by our regular Bible reading? Uh, our belief in the inerrancy of Scripture, our subscription to the Westminster Confession of Faith, um, the Lord's Prayer that we say every Sunday. Uh, what if we lead Bible studies? Or what if we lead discipleship groups? Um, what if we serve as an officer in the church? What if we're part of a racial reconciliation group? Do these things, any of these things, prove a lively faith in Jesus Christ? And Jesus says no. Um, these things may be a part of a, maybe part and parcel of a, of a true Christian life, but they're none of them the mark of a true Christian faith. So the question is, what is, what is the mark of a true Christian? And Jesus gives us the answer, as you see right there plainly in our text. The mark of true Christian faith is love for one another within the body of Christ. Again, 13, 34 through 35. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. You know, this same Apostle John in the letter we call 1 John in the fourth chapter, in verse 20, he says this, If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. 
For he who does not love his brother whom he has, whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Now, uh, some, I think, when they read this, uh, they say to themselves, now, wait a minute. What's this new business? The command to love is as old as the law of God. I mean, Leviticus chapter 19, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Even Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 22 said that the sum of the law, uh, the sum of, of the law is, you, you know, uh, love the Lord your God, all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. Even John elsewhere in 1 John chapter 2 says that at some level the commandment is not new. So how is it new? Well, it's new in its controlling illustration and principle. It's new in its dynamic and its motive and its basis and its example and its standard and its extent. It's new in the depth of its meaning imparted by the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ was seen and is seen a love the likes of which the, the world had never seen and still has no category for. It was a love that created relationships that never before had existed. Yes, love your neighbor. Even, yes, love your enemies. But here is a command to believers to love one another with a special love that may be found only among believers. The world cannot love the way Jesus commands us to love here. He's not talking about sexual love between husband and wife. He's not talking about brotherly love between friends and neighbors. He is talking here about an otherworldly, other-centered, self-denying, self-sacrificing, self-giving, willful, purposeful, intentional, generous, humble love, a love that is for the good of the one loved. It is a love that finds its source in the Lord Jesus Christ who displayed this love perfectly. It's a love that is the gift of God through the gospel. It is the fruit of the, the Spirit planted in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. It is the love of the indwelling Jesus Christ. It's the love we see explained in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. It's a love peculiar to Christians. It's a love that is not found. It's alien to the unconverted natural man. You know, one of the writers said that whereas the Old Testament demanded that men should love their neighbors as themselves, the new law is that they should love their brethren better than themselves and that they should die for their friends. John 15, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And that's what Jesus did. Another writer says this, the New Testament never pits love for neighbor over against love for our brothers and sisters. It sometimes focuses on one and sometimes focuses on the other. Here Jesus does not say that we are to love our neighbors less, but that we are to love our brothers and sisters in Christ more because we can and because we're in an eternal relationship with them. You know, I remember an illustration in a sermon one time I listened to by Sinclair Ferguson. Uh, I think I've used this illustration before. Uh, he was preaching on 1 Corinthians 13, and the illustration was based on the hit song by the Beatles, All You Need Is Love, right? Now, you'll, you'll all be singing that the rest of the day, right? Um, and so what, what you may not know about that song is it was first sung publicly in the first live global satellite television special 
in the summer of love in 1967, which was the time of Love Ends and Love Fest, right? It was a message from John Lennon and the Beatles to the world. And yet many, and yet many millions then, and, and, and since then, even though they have sung along that, 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 that song countless times, Ferguson observed this. You could argue that the generation that embraced that song as its theme was the generation most characterized by self-love. It was the generation that laid the groundwork for the culture of self-love and narcissism that followed. In fact, the two most famous Beatles, John, uh, John Lennon and Paul McCartney, they struggled for years with jealousy and conflict. So what was the problem? Simply this. The song, All You Need Is Love, didn't have the power to produce what it preached. It didn't have the power to change people's hearts. It didn't have the energy to produce patience and kindness, to inhibit envy and boasting or other forms of self-centeredness. In short, all you need is love, couldn't produce love. Why not? Because love, true love, agape love, the love we see in 1 Corinthians 13 and elsewhere between and among brothers and sisters in Christ, it's simply beyond human capacity. We just can't drum it up. We can't want it up. We can't produce it. We don't have in ourselves the power, the resources, truly, truly to love. We are all by nature self-centered. And this is the reason for so much disappointment in relationships. We're self-centered. Agape love is not an emotion or feeling that we simply drum up after listening to a song that tells us all we need is love. Love is a gospel-driven principle of action that endures when emotions want to quit. One writer puts it this way, Christ-fueled love represents the power of the new age breaking into this present age. This kind of love is the only vital force in the world which has a future. It stamps on this life the life of heaven where regard and respect for others dominate life with God in the communion of the saints. It displays itself in a life of active regard, respect, and concern for the welfare of others. Leon Moore says, this kind of love is a quality we see on the cross. It's a love that proceeds from a God who is love. And it will, more or less, mark the life of every genuine believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. But there's a second truth that's closely related to the first one, and it's apparent on the face of the text. So, number one, the mark of a true Christian faith is this special otherworldly love that believers have for one another. But the second truth is this, is by that otherworldly love, the world is going to know two related things. They're going to know who is our, who is our Lord. They're going to know who's the heart of our love. They're going to know who we follow, whom we follow. And they're also going to know that the gospel is true. Again, our text from John chapter 13, by this all men will know that you're my disciples by the love that you have for one another. And, and look at John 17, Jesus' prayer in John 17. He, he prays that the loving unity of his people will give the world reason to believe that the Father has sent the Son, will give the world reason to believe that the gospel is true. Tertullian, who was an early Christian writer who wrote about 100 years after the gospel of John was written, he recorded the pagans of his day saying this about Christians, and this is a quote. See how they love 
one another. How ready they are to die for one another. John Stott is right when he says that a divided church cannot bring healing to a divided world. In fact, a divided church is a stumbling block to the world. When the world sees segregated lives and segregated relationships among Christians, it has a reason to believe that the Father has not sent the Son. It has a reason to believe that the gospel is not true. But when the world sees brothers and sisters in communion <coughs> with one another in Christ across racial and socioeconomic barriers, when the world sees examples of the walls of division come down, think of Ephesians. When the world sees that, <coughs> then it has to sit up and take notice. It has to say, now wait a minute. I don't have any category for this. Yes, I have a category for violence and I have a category for conflict. But I don't have a category for cross-racial and cross-cultural unity. I have no category for that. I have no category for love and community among people who just aren't alike. And the world says, what's behind this? They say they're Christians. Could this Christian gospel be true? It must be. I have no other category for what I'm seeing. One writer says this, he sums it up, this display of unity is so compelling, so otherworldly, that our witness as to who Jesus is becomes explainable only if Jesus truly is the revealer whom the Father has sent. It's the only thing that makes sense. So by way of application, let me ask a question to, my, to myself and my non-African-American brothers and sisters here in the room this morning. Do we have any African-American friends and in particular, given our text, do we have any African-American Christian friends who come to our house on a regular basis to eat supper or to whose houses we go on a regular basis to eat supper? Do we have any African-American friends with whom we eat breakfast or lunch with regularly? I'm not talking about acquaintances. I'm not talking about people we work with. I'm not talking about our workout buddies. I'm not even talking about people who are part of our Bible studies or our racial reconciliation groups, as helpful as those may be. My question is this. Do we have any African-American brothers and sisters in Christ who are our friends? Robin D'Angelo has written a book entitled White Fragility, Why It Is So Hard for White People to Talk About Racism. She was interviewed about that book, and I think it's helpful to give you some of the gist of what she said in that interview, and it's this. Most white people go from cradle to grave <coughs> in racial segregation. Most white people do not have authentic, sustained relationships across race, particularly with black people. I'm not talking about acquaintances. Show me your wedding album. Most white people have not been educated on racism. We don't talk about racism with other people. We don't talk about racism with people of color. We don't really have any friends who are people of color. <coughs> and we really haven't cared to find out about racism 
or how people of color feel about it. Yes, we white people, we're sometimes troubled and sometimes we're moved temporarily by racism and social injustice, but not enough or not long enough to do anything about it. To take active, to practice active empathy. You know, in these last weeks, longtime pastor, uh, Mississippi pastor Tim Fortner used to say this all the time. And in these last weeks, I've begun to understand the truth of it. We're either part of the problem or we're part of the solution. And for pretty much all of my life, I've been part of the problem. And I don't want to be part of the problem anymore. So let me close in that light with some suggestions and some encouragements and some exhortations to action to me and to my white brothers and sisters. First, let's agree that racism is real and is opposed to gospel love. Second, let's admit that we are racists who do not understand racism. Third, let's repent of our sin of racism, including our sin of apathy toward the injustices and sufferings of our black brothers and sisters. Fourth, let's commit to making African-American friends, in particular African-American Christian friends. Let's share relationships here with people we will live with forever. Let's eat supper together. Let's sit on the patio and visit together. Let's go to the park together every now and then and picnic. Let's play charades together. Let's pray together. Let's get to know one another as fellow image bearers of God, as friends. Fifth, let's listen and learn from our African-American brothers and sisters. Let's be quick to listen and slow to speak. Let's ask questions and be educated by our black brothers and sisters. Let's stop saying, I'm not a racist. My family never owned slaves. Let's let our repentance be seen in our quiet teachableness at the feet of our African-American brothers and sisters. And sixth and last, let's commit to reading and studying materials and people and watching documentaries, etc that can help us understand the history and the effects of slavery and racism and how these things have impacted the world and every single one of us. Listen, racism impoverishes, impoverishes us all. Through racism and through segregation, we become, we become pots of gumbo with one ingredient. Not very tasty. In fact, when we think about that, it's tragic because there's so much more available to us in Christ. In Christ, there's so much available fullness of joy across racial and cultural and socioeconomic lines. There are so many more ingredients for the gumbo that we don't have to miss out on in Jesus Christ. I used to say this all the time, and it sounds silly, but if you think about it, it makes a little bit of sense. Brothers and sisters, we're raising tomatoes 
when we could be raising Lazarus. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, we pray that you would give us grace. You would give us grace uh, to repent, give us grace to glorify you, give us grace to enjoy you in every part of our lives, in a fuller community of brothers and sisters in Christ, that the world might believe that the gospel is true, that you really, really, really indeed have sent your Son to be the revealer of a kingdom come. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.